And hello, movie lovers, and welcome to the show. So tonight, actually, I have a very special guest with me. I have Heidi, and we're going to be reviewing Friday the 13th, the 1980s original movie of Friday the 13th. So with further ado, let's go on ahead. Let's head to Camp Crystal Lake, and hopefully we'll survive the night in Camp Crystal Lake without somebody trying to kill us. Here we go. Heidi, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm glad to be I'm back. doing great. It's always a great time to be able to another review with you. And this time to talk about Friday the 13th, the original one. We actually did the documentary for Kane, for Kane Harder. So now we're back again to do, to do this one. So I'm very excited to be able to do this. I am too. Um, I did a lot of research after the movie and um, found out a lot of cool facts. So it's pretty interesting. It definitely is. And, you know, this is actually one of those movies that people get confused with. With as well because some people are like well it was Jason Voorhees in the first one no it was his mother before for this but we'll get to that later but you know I really have to say I really enjoyed this um re-watching this after so many years so Betsy Palmer played Pamela Voorhees Jason's mother and the vibe that you get from her when she first appears you know she seems like she's nurturing and um Alice Hardy runs to her for help and you expect her you know, Pamela to, you know, she shows the signs of like she's trying to give condolence and, you know, concern and um, just, you know, she's nurturing. And then all of a sudden she had that twist and it's like, you know. Right. Because all of a sudden it just switches like a light bulb all of a sudden where it's like, okay, just well, tell me, honey, what's what's going on? Next thing you know, it just show me goes into the cabin and everything. Then she explains the backstory of Jason and the counselors and everything else. Keep an eye on him. This wouldn't have happened. And then it goes into the backstory of the fact that this is his mother. So I really like that whole entire dynamic where this innocent girl is trying to look for his refuge in this woman that she doesn't even know and hoping that, you know, she would actually get rescued from her. So I definitely like that aspect to it, at, at, like towards the end of it, you know? I do like, too. And yeah. believe it or not, like Friday the 13th's backstory is deep. Like, yes, it's a slasher movie. Yes, it's 1980s film where, you know, uh, the cinematography by Barry Adam or Abrams, I'm sorry, Barry Abrams did the cinema photography on it. So you got that 1980s film versus the filming that we do presently. But um, what's crazy about the backstory story is so Jason Voorhees as a little kid what was he nine I think nine yeah. years old when he had drowned in Camp Crystal Lake yeah. and the reason he drowned was because the camp counselors were fornication well let's get into a little bit of uh the plot because we're gonna go through this scene by scene as well but yeah like you said though in a brief prologue said in 1958 two summer camp counselors at Camp Crystal Lake named Barry Jackson and Claudette Hayes think away from the campfire singing along to have to have sex before they completely undress. An unseen assailant sneaks into the room. Barry and Claudette notice her. Barry is trying to convince the assailant that they weren't doing anything. Unconvinced, the assailant stabs Barry in the guts, chases down Claudette, and slashes her throat. So the opening scene alone is really phenomenal because you don't even see the killer. It's just like this first-person view kind of angle of it. And you don't, And this is actually the not the first time that something like that happened because it even happened in Halloween where it was like a first-person view of Michael's staring out in the yards and stuff like that but you know it's just something horrifying to see these counselors uh, wind up dying and because of the fact that they were trying to fool around and then you know and then you wind up seeing that scene but what did you think of the opening it was interesting because you know first of all back in the 80s you see which one was it alice who was hitchhiking or annie annie annie, annie, was, annie hitchhiking. was hitchhiking to meet up with her friends and she got into a, tr a truck with a trucker no thoughts you know just got in didn't even worry about safety back then you know you can't be doing that today so you know just just that alone of how different it was from back then till now is kind of crazy and i mean stuff happened back then but not like it does now no definitely not i would not get into the no truck with no truck or anything like that either to be honest with you because you don't know this person from adam 
And then Annie is just an innocent person as well. She's just trying to get over to the Camp Crystal Lake so that way she can do her cooking. And let's let's talk about Camp Crystal Lake. If that that's a real place, like now obviously it's not really called Camp Crystal Lake, but um, it's located in Hardwick, New Jersey, and its real name is Camp Nobibosco, mm -hmm. and it's a real place. Um, but it is closed to the public, but it does allow touring. So okay. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, just because of how far, if you would have asked me like last year would i go there i'd probably tell you hell no but how far <laughs> that i've come along like with the whole friday the 13th and kane hotter and being top five in the contest um i'd go i definitely feel like i have to go there now just to to visit i mean honestly though if i did get there i don't know how i'd feel <laughs> <laughs> might be a little uneasy because of the things that we've learned from the movie itself right right but at the same time you know being in the entertainment business i do know you know that is it is all made up but it's still just as watching this as a younger young adult and young teen back then i might still have a little bit of scars stuck but then you actually have the film that moves forward to the present fr uh friday june 13th a young woman named annie phillips enters the small diner and asks for directions to camp crystal lake much to the shock of the other patrons and staff enos a friendly truck driver from the diner agrees to give annie a lift to the crossroads cemetery which is halfway to the camp my mm -hmm. thing was this okay so why didn't she just get a ride all the way to the camp? Why, and I understand this is a small town. I understand people don't want to go even near this place because of what happened, the events that happened. But at the same time, you're letting this innocent woman who is an innocent bystander just to get murdered. If you know all this stuff is happening, but also too, the guy is also telling her, hey, you need to turn around. You don't need to even be bothering with this place. So I guess he's like, well, she's on her own, if that's the case, you know. But at the same time, you can't help but feel scared for Annie, though, because because she doesn't know anybody. She's in a town that she doesn't know. She's not self-aware of anything. All she's hearing is these rumors. But I also like how the camera angle is. It has like that documentary kind of feel to it at first. Because that was actually on a regular uh, Polaroid or something like that. I forgot the name of the film that they actually put it on. But I really like that. Because it makes us feel like that we're the passenger going along the, for this ride with her. So we feel that much more scared for her. Right. It's just like you're, you're right there. Um, but it didn't make sense to me why she wouldn't if she's going with her friends and it's a small town why wouldn't she just ride with her friends so like you said but for some right. reason she decided to go into a diner and ask a bunch of strangers my thing was this i don't think anybody knew her because remember whenever they're sitting up like okay so is everybody here yeah all except that one girl annie she hasn't come in yet so i'm thinking that they don't know each other so therefore that's okay. why yeah maybe maybe annie was kind of new to the to the group because that's what i'm assuming because it seems like all the group knows each other all except they don't know annie who was just going to be the cook because remember she's like they're like well who did that so everybody's here yeah all except that one girl annie i don't know where she's at she hasn't arrived yet so, so that was what one thing other than like obviously kane wasn't in the first jason yet it was pamela you know played by betsy um but the thing is is when this first friday the 13th came out there really wasn't an all-star cast nobody was anybody big now yes kevin bacon was in there but he wasn't big at the time that he was in this. No, because I forgot, when did Footloose come out at that time, though, right? It came out in the 80s, but it wasn't where... I want to... That was at 84. So four 84? years later, yep, okay. four years later, uh, Footloose comes out. So it's just like, crazy to think about the fact that he's not even a household name yet. He's an unknown. So you have some unknown people that moved on to do some good work in Hollywood. Right, absolutely. But, you know, I like the fact that they started off with the mother and not with Jason, because I think mm -hmm. that was a neat way to actually get Jason's revenge on the people that killed his mother now. Because now you don't have just one person seeking revenge. Now you also have the son seeking the revenge of his, of mother. his mother. It's funny because it, it, it tells the story perfectly. And if you notice, most of the victims are more of the sexually active ones versus at the time, I don't think Alice was very sexually active. She was more of the loner. All of them were kind of partnered up in a way. Um, right. And so, you know, with that being said, because of the negligence of Jason being drowned in the lake, because of the 
counselors, you know, not paying attention because they were having sex, you know, it's almost like a revenge. It's almost like a revenge love story. It, it definitely is it's about a mother and uh, mother and son relationship and the bond that they have, the love of a mother trying to seek revenge on the people that did him wrong, which is the camp counselors that had sex during the time that he drowned. Right. And then the twist, the twist is, is his revenge on his mother's death. I mean, it's a sick bonding love story, <laughs> you know, relationships and, and good, you know, not just intimate relationships, but relationships. Mm-hmm. Then you also have this other scene, though, too. You have um, Annie leaving the diner. They're interrupted by Crazy Ralph asking, you're going to Camp Blood? Anos and Annie ignores, and Ralph starts talking to Annie, warning her to, of the danger, but they ignore Ralph and keep going. Then Annie and Anos reach the truck uh, during their drive, like we mentioned. He warns her about the dark, bloody history of Camp Blood and insists that she quit immediately, informing her of, the bo- of a boy drowning in 1957, the two murders, and serial arson as reasons why the camp is considered cursed. Annie ignores this suspicion and continues her hike to the camp when dropped off at the cemetery. And then you have that one scene where where now it goes into Ned, Robstein, Jack Burwell, and Marcy Stanler. And Jack and Marcy are a couple, and Ned is most likely jealous of them. They are all headed to Camp Crystal Lake to work as counsel. So I like how they established this other cast now. We actually met Annie. She's the first character that we get introduced to. Then we get into this other thing where we're introduced to Kevin Bacon. We're introduced to these other characters. And we're also, once again, feeling like that we are along part of that ride, the way that it sets up, which makes us more be more invested in these characters later on when they get killed off. Because we're wondering who's going to be the final person that winds up surviving this whole entire tragic thing that happened. So I thought the set initial setup was really good. You actually, and some people will say, well, maybe it's like a little bit of paint by the numbers. But for me, I thought it was a great setup for characterization to understand these characters. Um, the fact that the way the slasher setup is kind of like paint by numbers, but like you said, you know, the characters was what tells the story. And um, I think they did a great job by it. So I watched a little bit of the Netflix series of the movies that made us, and it was actually the Friday the 13th one. Now, they didn't have enough budget at the time to finish off the bathroom or anything. So there was like only one working commode. The rest of it was not even finished or completed. So I like how the fact that they use that as a way because it's actually perfect. You don't need to finish because it's supposed to be a condemned place that something mm-hmm. tragic happened. So I'm glad that they ran out of budget to where they couldn't do anything with it. Then also too, they also painted the doors red. Everything was red in this to amputate the blood bloodiness of what this camp is. And to, so I thought yeah, they, to yeah. symbol, symbolize it. Exactly. But yeah, the, that was a great way of actually setting it up. And also too, the characters are really, or something that you're rooting for. And then Alice runs to Bill Brown, who's by the lake, and talks to him. Alice runs back towards the main cabin, and then Annie hitches uh, to the camp. A driver appears, and Annie asks for a ride. As Annie talks to the driver, the driver is especially quiet. But as the driver speeds up past the entrance to the camp, Annie starts to panic and jumps out. The driver chases the injured girl in the woods, catching her and slitting her throat. So, what did you think of that scene? For me, seeing in that first-person view, and you know that this person's quiet, that's not a good sign. Not at all especially when they start speaking uh speeding up and it made me wonder like who exact because they don't show you the driver's face um you know it's kind of you just know it's the driver and everything but when she jumped out she continued to carry her stuff if that would have been me i would have just dropped my stuff i would have went and found like a pile of leaves or somewhere and hid in a bush somewhere instead she tried to run she was determined to get that damn job i'm just gonna tell you she was determined to get that cooking job even if it was going to kill her too because you know that that has a they, she had a huge backpack on her it's one of those hiking yeah. backpacks and that's just going to slow her down so i didn't understand why she even had that on to begin with either because i would have just lost that thing and just kept on running but she was determined to be a cook for that camp i can tell you that honestly like i would have thrown it in the opposite direction and ran the other way so that way whoever was chasing me would see it in the opposite direction and think i was going that way but no she decided to carry it with her slow her down uh stumble with her ankle with her little tuck and roll out of the vehicle and how did they like she could see the the lake she wasn't far from the lake so how did they not hear her scream i think it goes by how far they were depending on where they were in the different locations don't forget you also have different layers of this camp that's huge 
<laughs> you have the archery. You also have uh, the bathrooms. The bathrooms also seem further away, though, too, from the other cabins. Right. And so it's a little bit harder to actually, in my opinion, to hear somebody screaming when basically you're so miles out, miles out though, too, depending on where you are in the camp. Yeah, and she, you know, it also depends whether or not she was what you, I don't, well, I don't know if you want to call it upstream at a lake, you know, depending on what, what angle she's standing at, too. But it was confusing to me. It was like, you'd think that they would have heard that because the exactly. one girl says, I think I see something moving over there, but then was like, she was like, nope, never mind. You see, I thought, I took it the other way. I thought it was um, basically Jason's mother watching them. I didn't take it as them uh, hearing anybody crying out for help or anything like that or screaming. I just took it as the fact that it was Jason's mother watching them. That's how I always picked it. But that's actually a good call, though. I didn't think of it on that in that that's, kind of way. That's an interesting perspective, and I'll have to go back and rewatch. As Brenda Jones is trying to set up an archery range, suddenly an arrow is shot up next to her. Discovered that it was Ned trying to fool around. What did you think of this scene? Because I thought it was a, a kind of a douchebag type of thing for him to do. And I remember. Okay, so Brenda, pay, uh, played by Lori uh, Bartram, she mm -hmm. did a good job of you know her reaction. But I honestly, like you said, it was a douchebag move. I probably would have whooped his ass. That had me on the edge of my seat when I, you know, first seen that. I'm like, I, I wouldn't ever talk to that person again. And it doesn't matter how close the friends we are. I don't care. You almost yeah. try to fucking kill me. I'm gonna go on ahead and go after you for doing what right. you did. That's that's just that's not cool. And you know that. And then he thought it was funny. Right. And I thought to myself, I want whoever is killing anybody. This would be the person. This is the punchable face. This is the person that you would want killed. Right. First. In the movie. Right. In the movie. So that's that's what I got out of it though too because it establishes the one ball bag of the group that is that is basically just a douche you want him killed so this would be the guy for me that i would want killed in the movie you know he's like i don't know if i'm gonna go back to way childhood um you know we had scooby-doo and then the pup named scooby-doo and freddie jones was always saying it's red herring so to me you know he was the red herring like he's the one that needs to go you know he definitely did not become my favorite character after that move me either he was the unlikable per character now the person that's running the camp to me he's the one that more likable because of the fact that he's trying to be understanding towards the final girl to the point where she's kind of shy kind of timid kind of woman and she's like look if you don't feel comfortable being here and everything in a couple of days or whatever i'll go on ahead we'll go i'll take you and we'll leave so he was trying to be a little bit sympathetic to her needs and wants so i definitely have more respect for him i also thought to myself for this well hamlet if you want to go on ahead and kill anybody for running for opening up this camp just kill him right because he's up. right just kill him and guess what no camp these kids don't have any money to open this camp up or anything so all you have to do is just kill him and that's it but then then again it'll be the end of the movie but that's how i saw it i wonder but. how much money they had to offer a character that had to wear the speedos oh my god <laughs> my bad. my 14 year old daughter walked in on that scene and she said mom and i'm like <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> like, this was a Thrasher movie. I wasn't expecting that either. But, um, yeah, the Speedo scene, I hope he got paid well for that. Me too, because that dude does not belong in no Speedo. I was expecting that more out of Kevin Bacon than I would that guy, to be honest with yes, you. Yes, yes. Uh, but yeah, the counselors also decide to swim at the lake. They are setting up the rafts as Alice and Bill are lying next to the lake. As the counselors are swimming in the lake, Brenda notices something strange in the face and facing them in the woods. We talked about that where we established that we thought that number one it was either Pamela or maybe some or maybe Annie being chased and being killed. Mm -hmm. um, Marcy was worried but Brenda was saying that it was probably nothing. Later on when they were all playing they noticed that something is wrong with Ned. They noticed that he is drowning. Brenda and Jack run to the lake to rescue Ned. They get him up to the raft. As Brenda is trying to perform a uh, resurrection, Ned uh, kisses Brenda as it was a prank. So he want, they wind up trying to do CPR on, on him and then he winds up pranking it to kiss Brenda. So Yeah, that was like another douchebag move, but it's to be expected by young adults, I guess we should say. I definitely don't like if if I was in that position, I would not want a guy to either shoot an arrow at me or pretend he's drowning. That's the thing. The movie that comes to my mind when somebody's faking us faking that would be Squints from Sandlot. Squints from the Sandlot, yes, with uh Peppercorn. What was her first name? Sandy uh Sandy Peppercorn. Mm -hmm. And that was 
would be the only time that I would say that you can get away with that because he's like a little kid who's trying to experience life and things like that too. But to see these grown men try to pull something like yeah. that, it's definitely was, a ball bag move. Quince was a young adolescent, so that was epic. But to have an adult do it or a young adult do it, you know, that's just like, come on, you know better. Right. But then again, hormones are all over the place. So therefore, you know, he's like, well, I'm going to try and get with Brenda. So I'm going to go on hand and get her to practice CPR on me. I swam in Lake Seneca. Mm -hmm. And when I was swimming, I was 17 when I was swimming in Lake Seneca. And I had a fish go under my foot and touch me. And it felt as big as a human. So <laughs> at that part, that instant replay of when I was 17 in Lake Seneca up in New York at the Italian Festival, swimming in that lake, I never got back in that lake ever again. I don't blame you. I wouldn't be getting back in that lake either if I felt something touch me that didn't feel natural or anything either. But that was a good play on your part, though, for thinking it was Jason pulling him down, because I was thinking it was probably the mother. But then again, you don't know who the killer is. At the Here's the thing. Whenever I was, when I first seen this movie, I didn't know who the killer was, so I was thinking it was actually the killer. Then, right. you know, yeah. So that was my initial thoughts. But then you think that, okay, maybe uh, it was actually the mother. Because when you rewatch it, you forget a few things or whatever. Mm -hmm. You're thinking that maybe it might be the mother doing that. But then it was just him being a total douchebag instead. I didn't even think of it as it could have been the mother um, at first. But, but then again, she'll be waiting there for a long ass time to, to try to do something. Right. So it also doesn't make sense. But still, horror movies, slasher movies don't need to make sense to make something work either. So, you know, it's just my imagination going off the deep end, no pun intended, uh, whenever it comes <laughs> down to uh, the thinking that it was Pamela trying to kill um, the kid kill him. But, okay, so as Ned is fooling around, they visit, uh, they get a visit from Oscar Dorf, who is searching for Ralph. Brenda says that they never saw anyone that entered the camp. Jack notices Officer Dorf's uh, motorcycle, as the officer denied to let him on. Officer Dorf then gets a call from the station and leaves the camp. The way he leaves the camp is hilarious to me. Instead of him just pulling the motorcycle around, he goes on his head, goes all the way at the end of the road, just about, turns his ass back around, and then floors it. And I just thought it was hilarious to show some intimidation. I am the law of this little small right. town. It's hard to take him serious with his name being that. Officer Dor Dorf. Yeah. You know, so, and maybe maybe that's where he got his big character from. Like, I have to show you I'm the law because you can't take me serious by my name. That's true. That's actually a good call on that. I didn't think about that. But yeah, as Alice sets uh, up the kitchen dinner for Marcy and Ned, she opens the pantry. Ralph approaches from the pantry. Ralph says, I'm the messenger of God. You're doomed if you stay here. This is a place that's cursed. Cursed. It's got a death curse. As he runs from the cabin to the bicycle, Alice looks at him and says you're doomed you're all doomed Dexter says i think we met, just met ralph <laughs> ralph is a funny character to me and i lately i've seen a lot of memes with him um but he he definitely was a funny character because he he's trying to be serious and a lot of people take him as a crazy old man. And I think that's how we as the audience takes them though too. It's just a crazy old man in this crazy town. Because every small town has a crazy person that they all know. We all know a rat, right. for example. So I think that we as an audience is also taking him not seriously either, just like how these kids are. Because to us, he's hilarious. Because of the fact he just pops out of the pantry and they think that he's wacko out of his mind. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's actually a good prescription when you think about it in that kind of terms. You know, where we as an audience is taking him not so seriously just as they are not taking him so seriously but this is also the part where i told you about with annie where they were like okay well is anybody everybody here oh yeah All except that girl annie she hasn't come yet so this was the scene that i was talking about a storm is approaching as the sun goes down when jack and marcy are walking along the lake ned is getting jealous and walking another way he then noticed someone that is dressed with black slacks, brown plaid shirt, and a class ring. That person was standing outside Ned and Marcy's cabin. As Ned approaches, that person he asks, can I help you? And he goes into the cabin. So what did you think of that one? That was just creepy. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, I would have had a little bit more concern, but at the same time, I don't think I would have wanted to approach them alone. Um, yeah, I wouldn't want to approach them alone either, to be honest with you. I thought it was a lot. Really, Ned didn't really seem to be too 
too, too bothered by it, though. And I would have. I would have been more concerned. I would have been, too, especially when you're in this area with these kids and you're wondering who the hell is this. I would have you know? definitely asked questions. Yeah. Then after that, you have Marcy who talks about her dream. She had many times saying that in the, in the dream, it was raining very hard and the rain turned into blood. When she was done with that story, the thunder and lightning was getting worse. Jack says, it's, it is going to rain like a son of a gun. And they get into the, their cabin as they uh, went into the cabin. And they started to have sex in a bunk bed, unaware that Ned's body is in the bunk above them as his throat okay. is slit. So like how, now we know. Yeah. How do they not notice that, though? Like, if you think on average bunk beds or at camp, especially at their age, they would have been tall enough to see it. Well, not only that, though, if you, uh, Heidi, but if you think of it like this, those bunk beds also kind of sink in when somebody's laying on them. Oh, yeah. So you, so, because these were old, rusted bunk beds. These were not brand new bunk beds. Because even whenever that you had that incident with the snake and everything, too, mm -hmm. where they get the machete and they cut off the snake's head, for example, those were some old beds. That was some old furniture that was being thrown around. So right. these are bunk beds that would easily be sunk in when somebody's laying down so they wouldn't even have enough room to even fool around or do anything with because of the fact that some there's a body up above them yeah so wouldn't they notice like if they're on the bottom bunk that's what Especially i would think, with but... dead weight. <laughs> <laughs> exactly but i guess when you're in the heat of the moment you don't pay attention to dead bodies i don't know but <laughs> <laughs> Or notice if there's anybody up above you, even though there right. wouldn't be enough room to even do anything anything to that stature. Um, but I like how the lightning emulates his face to show that he's dead and everything. And it's that, that creepiness of the storm itself that is very unsettled that I really like about this. I like how dark this film is, if that makes it any really sense. It really is. And that was um, one of the things that the critics didn't figure out was that um, even though, like I was saying about uh, Gene Siskel founded a Appalling. The critics didn't figure out that the whole point of the movie was of the violence and trashiness. That was the point. They wanted it to have that trashy, trashy, violent feel to it. Well, this is what I'm thinking, okay? Number one, this is an abandoned camp that they're trying to get back up and running again. There's no lights really any, anywhere around them other than the flashlights. So, of course it's going to be dark. And there's no lights other than the what's inside the cabins. So, I like the fact that it's dark like that because it's actually... It makes sense for it to be dark. Right. Absolutely. Like it's considering it's such a gloomy, negative area because of what has happened in the past, you know, that it's, it sets the mood of the darkness. And, uh, you know, first thing, if you're trying to get a camp, an abandoned camp up and running, which is actually the camp really is to this day, a boy scout camp, um, in real life, it is a boy scout camp. But the last thing I would want to do as a camp counselor or the, the person in charge of the camp is have a bunch of horny teenagers as my counselors. You're right about that. I wouldn't want no horny uh, teens <laughs> as my camp counselors or anything like that because they don't care about that. All they care about is like basically a paycheck and that's it. So yeah, I, I definitely do. I definitely agree with you on that. Another thing too is I think that when we actually see this part being played out though too, uh, while Marcy is used in the bathroom, she hears that door creaking as it's opening. Marcy suspects that it's Jack. She leaves the bathroom, washing her hands. Marcy is uh, staring at her mirror, talking to herself. She hears a little noise from the shower room. She thinks it's the counselors pulling a prank on her. As Marcy approaches the shower, she opens. She opens the shower bl blinds and thinks that it's only her imagination. Then from the shadow, an axe is raised. As Marcy turns around, the axe is slammed on Marcy's head. This scene always gets me, though. It's so unexpected. And you know that you're expecting a jump scare, but you're not expecting it to happen so quickly quickly right because usually after you know when somebody checks the bathroom stall or whatever they give the character enough time to basically turn around to, and walk into another part of the section or something like that but with this one he quickly turns around and then bam there's an axe and i like how marcy's like oh it's my imagination then bam there's the and axe to the head once time at all like, no, I thought that was actually a nice kill that they set up. I didn't think it was forced. I didn't think it was like a cheap jump scare. I thought what we wanted out of that scene. 
thing. Mm-hmm. That's they they nailed that one. They yeah. definitely did with that scene. The other one, as we're coming along, is the arrow. But um, I think those the bathroom scene and the arrow scene were the top two. Yeah, because I think that the arrow scene is probably hands down one of my favorite death scenes, aside from the axe. Um, but yeah, while Marcy is using the bathroom, she hears a cr- okay. So in Alice's cabin, Brenda becomes bored with nothing to do, and with the help of weed and beer, decides Bill and Alice should play strip Monopoly with her uh, with her to pass the time. <laughs> when he, <laughs> when the savage storm blows the door open halfway through the game, Brenda realizes her cabin windows are open and heads out to shut it. Calling it a night as Brenda gets ready for bed and curls up and up with a book. A childlike voice calls out to her from the storm. Unsure if it is another person or a serious call for help, Brenda gives in and heads out side in the rain. The outdoor lights come on, come up, revealing she has been walked into the archery rain. Blinded by the light, she is trapped by the killer and dies off screen. So, I, 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 like, kind I of, like that. I, I like that, but I was a little bummed that she was killed off screen. Um, not that I really wanted to pro-violence, but <laughs> the fact is, it's a slasher movie, so they took more of a classic approach to her death. Right, to make us wonder, okay, did she die, or what's going on here right because is she, her, is she gonna pop up later with injuries so it was it was more of a suspenseful kind of touch to it kind of like an albert hitchcock kind of feel to it in a sense because of the fact way that they did it you know yeah i agree to that yeah because i think that that's a, that's what they were trying to do they were trying to basically save some time probably with the with the other death scene because they're like well we already had two death scenes already so why don't we just go ahead and save her for later on when the big climax happens mm-hmm. so the way that people will wonder what happened to her but then at that time though people forget who she is nobody yeah. remembers anything about her so at the same time though it doesn't really work you know so do you think in your opinion that was a fail or do you think it was i feel like i feel like more than anything it feels like a missed opportunity to be able to because here's the thing we already established these characters right so to see her being pulled in that kind of way i feel like that we should have been earned that right to see her death yeah because i I yeah i just think it was a a missed opportunity i agree with that like like i said i would have i think it would have made more sense to see her death but in perspective i feel that it was done the way it was done to create the suspense i think so too it was to create and emulate the um the suspense of it as well so i but i don't really feel the suspense of it to be honest with you i just feel like it's a waste of a missed opportunity because nobody remembers her or right. anything until she actually goes through the window and it's like oh there she is okay. so, up. <laughs> right <laughs> next time use but, the door exactly just don't come through the window next time just use the door like an old person how rude dead person <laughs> exactly but yeah everybody when, uses the door when they're the dead person exactly and then when bill returns to alice's cabin after a quick adventure out alice tells him she heard a scream certainly it was brenda's the two of them head out to brenda's cabin where they find a bloody axe the same one used to kill marcy tucked away in brenda's bed searching jack and marcy's cabin and then the bathrooms alice and bill find no one around and they start to suspect it isn't a setup or a prank it is actually something serious so bill tries to keep alice calm by suggesting otherwise the two break into steve's office and find the phone have been cut they try to cut take jack's car to town but it won't start with a 20 mile walk through a pitch black forest and the pouring rain out of the question the two of two give up and decide to wait at the main lodge for Steve to come back. Isn't it ironic that the phone lines are cut and the car won't start? Exactly. At this point, they should know already that this is not a prank and stuff like that too, even though they found the axe. But come on, you you have two major things that happen. The phone lines are down. It's not because, of the, yeah, there's a storm, but that does not excuse the why, the reason why that the battery, that something's happening to the car as well. Either. But yeah, you have two for two on that. Do you think if they were a little bit smarter and played it out? Now, I know this was a movie and created a certain way but if they were normal teenagers today and they were smart and played it out and decided to all stay together in one room i think it leaves it open to the fact that all of them would probably have been dead you know or because you, there's a do you think the killer problem. would kill them all at once or do you think that they he would try to weed them out one-on-one like he did in the like they did in the movie i think that he would actually try to manipulate them at their weakness and find some way to draw them out of the cabin because they all can't be there 
there. For example, you can cut the lights off. You can do X amount of other stuff, like the windows. I mean, at some know, point, set the cabin on fire. To the bathroom. Right. Or set the cabin on fire. Right. Because it's wood. So that's another thing that it could have happened. But yeah, then meanwhile, okay. So meanwhile, Steve finishes his meal at the local diner, knowing that they are new to the camp and not as skilled as he is. Steve decides to head back to the camp for the lake to check on them. Instead of waiting out the storm in town, partway, uh, partway down the road, Steve's Jeep gets stuck in the mud, and because of the heavy load of supplies he's hauling, he can't get out. A passing policeman officers, offers him a ride back to camp, but gets a report of a serious accident in town and is forced to st drop him off as close as he can. As Steve walks the rest of the way back, he is stopped by a flashlight at the Camp Crystal Lake sign, apparently recognizing the person. Steve asks what they are doing out in this mess of a storm. The killer then stabs him with a knife. So I thought Steve's death was a little anticlimactic in a sense because it wasn't no lead up to it. It was like one of those first person view type of things again. And that mystery element of we don't know who this killer is and things like that too. Other than the fact that Steve knows this person, but that's about it. That's the only context that we have with this. Do you His think death was not as good? Okay, so Steve is a funny character. Um before I realized that it wasn't Jason or, and, and it wasn't his mother. I originally first thought, you know, when the first time watching this, that it could have been Steve. Um, True. And then you realize it's not Steve and that he knows the killer. So I'm wondering, like in the past story or history, if there was one to be created, not that there is, but if there was one to be created, I wonder if Steve knew the killer back when the time, like, was he a young boy at the time? Yeah, I think at that time, though, I want to say that he knew knew her because of the fact that she wound up saying that he's friends with the Christie's. So and I think he was actually one of the Christie's, if I'm not mistaken. I'm thinking that. That's uh, how he knew her was because of the fact that he was friends with the Christie's. And I think that's why. Oh, you? yeah, that's right. I remember that part now. So, and, yeah. yeah. But like I said, at first, you know how like when you first watch a movie for the first time and you kind of form your own opinion of who the killer is. Now, we all know, you know. Friday the 13th is iconic for Jason Voorhees. But if you have never watched it and didn't know who Jason was, that it kind of points like a picture that it could have been Steve, you know, or, you know, anybody, the truck driver, mm -hmm. anybody like it. The crazy guy, too, in the small town, too. He could, crazy Ralph. 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 If anybody that would be suspect, it would be Ralph. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? He knew too. But much. I want to circle back for a minute because we did miss out on one thing. Marcy said, uh, uh, here's the thing. So, you know how we were talking about the sex scene and stuff like that about how Jack and Marcy didn't rec and recognize that anybody was on top. Well, right. Marcy said afterwards that she has to go use the bathroom, leaving Jack unaware that the killer is in the same cabin and under Jack's bed the entire time. After Marcy left, Jack has grabbed grabbed a cigarette. A drop of blood dropped on his forehead. The killer has grabbed Jack's forehead, rimming an arrow through his be the bed, pursing his throat. So that was one, that was a scene that we forgot to even talk about. So I wanted to yes. go back to that well, real quick. I did elaborate a little bit on being one of the epic scenes and you know jack right. of course being played by kevin bacon what a iconic way to die <laughs> that if i would go out uh, with a bang or an arrow through my uh throat i think i would actually have that as my most clever kill because nobody would have actually thought of using an arrow and doing it through uh the bed like that you know imagine the force that that took to even put it through like, exactly that that is just something uh, that that person is very strong and i don't even want to mess with them that's how i feel about that person because of how strong they are to actually jam an arrow through the bed and plus the bed is also kind of dingy though too because it's not a very strong bed that that person probably just had the arrow underneath there the whole time it was like okay i'll just wait until he lays back down and then just let the arrow work its way underneath the mattress yeah. and do it that way Arriving back at the camp, the killer goes to the power generation cabin and disables it, forcing Bill to go out, um, to go out and investigate. He insists 
Alice stay in the cabin rather than follow. The bell does not return. Alice becomes concerned again and heads out to the generator cabin to look for him. Stopping him in the small cabin, she closes the front door and she finds his body pinned to the door by several arrows. Now alone, terrified, and knowing that something is killing her friends, Alice flees back to the main cabin and tries to barricade herself in. After a few minutes of silence, Brenda's corpse is hurled through the window. Hey, Brenda. <laughs> so, um, I thought this was an interesting time to actually uh, throw somebody through a window and have all these people showing up that we were introduced to and now they're dead. And we're having the same reaction that she's having now. Right. Alice. And, uh, you know, I thought that was something that was just crazy. Then all of a sudden she goes outside the cabin and stuff like that too. But well, let's talk about that. Alice hears a, a vehicle outside of the cabin and thinking it was Steve. And she runs out to join him and ex try to escape. Instead, she finds a middle-aged woman who introduced herself as Mrs. Voorhees. Mrs. Voorhees explains that she is an old friend of the Christie's. Alice hysterical warns her away. She insists on going inside to check after being told about the deaths. Mrs. Voorhees expresses horror and sadness at the sink at the sight of Brenda's body. Because this is actually the part that we were talking about at the very beginning. It was like, oh, what happened, my dear? What happened? Show me. And then you wind up seeing uh, that being played out where she's trying to be caring and being very charismatic towards her. And then all of a sudden that switch is just turned on to the fact that he gives her this whole entire backstory of everything everything that happened at this camp and starts criticizing and then she starts criticizing Steve for trying to open the camp after all that had happened on the camp curse Mrs. Voorhees tells Alice that her and Jason died that that her son Jason died at the camp in 1957 Mrs. Voorhees goes on a tangent describing how she was the camp counselor's cook and now Jason who wants a good uh, who wasn't a good swimmer had drowned in the lake when the counselors left the children and her her Jason unsupervised to go off and have sex. I'm telling Alice, Alice that June 13th, a Friday, is her son's birthday. She switches between talking to herself and shouting at Alice, accusing her personally of killing her son Mrs. Voorhees pulls out a, a hunting knife, the same one she used to kill several of Alice's friends. The class ring on her left hand remo uh, removes all doubt that Mrs. Voorhees is the killer. A lengthy chase in ensues, during which Alice flees her attack and finds Annie's body in Mrs. Voorhees' jeep and Steve's body hanging upside down outside. Well, Steve kind of deserved that, but um, isn't it cliche to say that Mrs. Voorhees was the old cook camp at the the camp the day well during the time that Jason the year that Jason drowned and the first one that gets killed is the replacement cook right and because if you think of it like this it's like as if she's like oh so she's the one who's replacing me when I was the original camp uh, counselor cook sorry but no one's replacing me I'm gonna go right. ahead and kill you for replacing me so therefore you have motivation now that she's pissed off because she's now took that position from her even right. though the camp's been closed down for X amount of years right it's, I didn't think of it like that until now it's that's what I said. Like, when you really deep, dig deep into it, it's very deep. <laughs> it's as deep as the lake. It definitely is. And, you know, and then you actually see echoes through her mind of Jason calling for his mom to help help him. And just, but instead, it's like, kill her, mommy. Kill her. Kill her. Okay, Jason. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll kill, kill them. And so, yeah, it's like a revenge story for the job now that she once had. And now that job is diminished because this person has the, had the job. And seeing Annie inside that Jeep... I'm like, you mean to tell me she's been running around the, in the street with this dead person the whole entire time? No, oh, that's insane. Definitely. Um, so it tells you who was driving the Jeep in the beginning. It, yep, it sure does. Um, uh, but what it you tells you though? without telling you. Exactly. My question is this. So when you see the Jeep pull up to that house, what was your first initial thoughts? Did you think, oh yeah, she's about to be saved or you think that this could be the killer? Well, when the Jeep first pulled up to the house, I was thinking it was the same Jeep that picked up Annie. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, no, it wouldn't have been a woman killer because you know that seems very nurturing and then you know that psycho music in her head goes off and she has that doc dr jekyll mr hyde type moment so um you almost know something's gonna happen without knowing that's true at that, at that moment and i like how this is actually the climax and everything too because now you have all the bodies piling up now knowing that she's not gonna alice is no longer safe in this place now and she has nobody to go to so i definitely like that aspect too 
to it. Uh, then you have Mrs. Voorhees uh, heads back into the generator room to turn the power back on before continuing to chase. She corners Alice in her storage shed where Alice finds a shotgun, but the ammunition drawer is chained and locked. Before Alice can load it, Mrs. Voorhees attacks her and slaps her around. Alice escapes and runs back to the main cabin, hiding behind a locked door in a pantry. Mrs. Voorhees breaks the door open and rushes in at Alice, brandishing at a machete. Alice hits her on the side of the head and with a frying pan, knocks her out. Alice sits by the lakeside, hoping that all is over, but Mrs. Voorhees rushes out of the darkness of her, at her with the machete. Barely avoiding the machete, Alice knocks it out of her hand with a pot paddle and the two wrestle by the lake. And Can, um, can we yeah. talk about when they're wrestling inside the cabin part there? Yeah. And that <laughs> Pamela, Pamela Voorhees bites Atlas in her wrist. I didn't even see that part. I didn't even notice that. She bites her? She bites her. She bites <laughs> her on the wrist. Um, <laughs> that is... That that's so funny though. It reminded me of okay, so my ki- my older kids are twenty four and twenty one, but I remember one time when they were younger, they were wrestling. They were mad, but they were wrestling to get out their anger, and I didn't let them. I didn't yell at them. I just kind of left them. I was a young mother, so I left them work it out. You know, I didn't want to split it up. They had to learn to work it out. And I remember my oldest, who she is now twenty four, and my son is twenty one, and she. She bit my son in his big toe because oh my, my son had more strength, even though he was younger. He had more strength. So her way of getting him to let go, she bit him in his big toe. <laughs> so, so when big. I seen that, when I seen that move where she bit um, Alice on the wrist... <laughs> Um, I instantly thought of my kids, like definitely Alice had probably was, had the upper hand of a little bit more strength and maybe in her mind, she was trying to, you know, get her to loosen her grip to get the upper hand. Um, definitely when you go back, watch that, you'll catch it. It's really quick. She'll bite her in the wrist. Okay. I will. I'll do that (laughs) because I didn't notice that she bit her. That's something that I didn't never notice in the movie. But, you know, I just, that's just an iconic fight between between the two of them and of course I'm the famous machete scene and then uh she holds up the paddle for the canoe and then you see, all of a sudden see Pamela Pamela goes on ahead and just goes slice it slices the canoe paddle with the machete like it was nothing and then you see them uh basically struggling and it was just an automatically brawl out of who will survive this fight it definitely was the battle of the survival battle for sure I love the battle this, this is hands down one of my favorite battles when it comes down to slashers or horror movies but yeah then you have this then of course when she Alice grabs the machete and uh, decapitates Mrs. Voorhees in one stroke and shock Alice gets in the canoe and and his paddles out of the middle of the lake where she falls asleep now the scene that I I always like this scene where she basically decapitates her with the machete and then you see the hands going like this and the Uh, little blood come out yeah I always like that little subtleness of it and then the body just automatically has that one little small reaction and then it falls down it was was definitely an iconic decapitation that's what my thought of what that is and um you know in the friday the 13th um series that they had going on um one of the uh the guy that made the special effects designer tom savini um he made several sculptures of jason for to do dying to kill him off but then they never ended up using it to keep him ongoing um like they put a machete in the face they did a scene Jason to be decapitated just like his mother. But you know what else though too is Tom Savini also worked with George um, Romero who did the, uh, who wanted up making like Night of the Living Dead and things like that too. Um, but I think also too the reason why they didn't want to decapitate Jason is because they wanted to build up on a franchise especially with the ending that we're about to talk about. But you know the morning comes and Alice is still asleep in the canoes. Police arrive and call out to her and she awakens and she sits up in the uh, contemplants of her rescue. The decomposing corpse of Pamela's son, Jason, attacks Alice and pulls her screaming hysterically out of the canoe. As she is uh, dragged underwater, she awakens in a hospital. When she asks about Jason, the police inform her that they never found the body in, uh, inside the lake. Alice then whispers, and he's still there. Iconically. Yeah. He's still there. That's how you know that they were trying to build up on a sequel, because they have now Jason, and now you have people that are like, okay, who is now what's going to happen with the Jason storyline now? Right, exactly. 
Exactly. And, um, you know, it gave it a suspenseful ending. Like, you know, what's going to happen to Alice later mentally, which, they, you know, they bring her back in the next one. Um, you know, and also, you know, how do they handle the camp? It, it, le it left it on suspense. You know, what about that body in the lake? You know, it, it, she just, she tells the police, you know, the boy pulled me under. Well, also, too, we're also wondering, as an audience, though, too, did she dream it? Is it just one of those things that she went through a lot of hell the night, and she just had this nightmarish dream about this kid that just popped out of the water? So it has that supernatural feel to it. Is it like, is it yeah, real, or is it just fantasy? Right, exactly. Like, she, is it something in her mind? Did it really happen? Did she dream it because Pamela had was told her in the beginning when she was nice, you know, that her son oh, the had story. the whole story about it? So was this in her head? because of that so it goes into like a little bit of psycho like a it goes from a slasher film to the very end to where it becomes like a psychological thriller in a sense the end of it i took a course in psychology in college when i went to argosy university and what i liked about this movie is i could pick at the characters a little bit and kind of try to analyze maybe where their thoughts could have been um you know and like you said with alice her thoughts you know it's kind of a psych psychological um hallucination when she's in the hospital and it could have been caused from the trauma of what she went through with pamela um and then you know just with everything else that kind of falls into place you know pamela's trauma of losing her son and it just having that to be able to kind of pick at it in my own mind as I'm watching right. made it a little bit more suspenseful. So, you know, you're not going to catch some of these just watching it one time around. It's definitely one that you pick out more little pieces that make more sense the more you watch it. Right. And that's one thing I can say about this movie too, though, is it has that rewatchable kind of flavor to it and everything too, because it's not one of those movies that you don't have to want to done kind of thing. Watch it again and get something else out of it like for instance with like you said the wrist scene where basically that uh battle between them between alice and also uh jason's mom and stuff like that that little scene and then of course wondering if this is actually a psychological thing that's going on with alice as well but i also like how the music is played like a dream so do you want do you think that's how they came up with like the, like this right here <laughs> that they play well it's also translated that's also translated to kill 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 yes as well so they have it in like a dreamlike sense dream sequence and things like that too because it does feel like a dream this thing does definitely feel like a dream type of feel to it because of the way that they're trying to set up you know i like that whole entire aspect that with the music that you mentioned with the kill 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 it's kind of like jason's whole entire thing echoing in his head just like how right. pamela's voice is echoing in her head as well See, and i used to struggle from seizures and when you first some people with having seizures they get these little auras and it's almost like it's set up like an aura like when some people get auras they hear distorted voices mm -hmm. um or like a noise or a high-pitched ringing in their ear so that you know, it's almost like an aura setting. Yeah, it's trying to think of what, how to actually subconscious, subconscious, your subconscious. Yeah, what I'm looking at. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. But yeah, all in all, though, I think this is a great slasher film for how to get started with Halloween and things like that too. And also too, I remember every Friday the Thirteenth, they used to play all the. They used to have a Friday the Thirteenth marathon on. Yep. Yeah. And um, could you imagine some of the other critics wanted this movie to bomb? They wanted it to flop and gene wrote um i hope i've ruined the friday the 13th which is the latest film by one of the most despicable creatures ever to infest the movie business if any film should be x-rated on the basics of violence this is it and guess what it didn't actually one of the most iconic things that you remember at halloween right not only that but okay but i'm just say that you know this this is the most x-rated thing there's no boobs in this thing there's hardly yeah there's blood but it's not like an over saturation of blood either it's not gory gory what is out now in the 80s though too the most x-rated part of 
that movie was the speedo scene. That's that I do remember. That's the most X-rated part that you know I could honestly think well, of killing. But I mean, they didn't. It wasn't enough to give you nightmares. No, and also too, this is also on a budget of five hundred fifty thousand dollars, and a fifty-nine point eight million at the box office. So that's very impressive for a film that's low budget, considering low budget at that time. Yeah, that's still a lot of money for low budget films. Yeah. So I think that's everything that we wanted to talk about as far as Friday the 13th goes. I definitely recommend you guys check it out when you guys can just to revisit it. This is a fun rewatch. I definitely had nostalgia going into it and rewatching it again and also learning a little bit of something new that I haven't seen um, haven't seen and not seen either. So I was very entertained with it. It's also streaming on Max right now. So go ahead and check it out on Max. Hope that you guys wind up checking it out. And of course, go ahead and check out Heidi's uh, YouTube channel and podcast and stuff like that. And it's just a wonderful podcast and stuff like that within the community itself. So check that out when you guys can. Always until next time. Thank you again, Heidi, for joining me. And always until next time, guys. Thank you Bye-bye. for having me. You're very welcome. Thank you for wanting to come on here. I do appreciate you every single time. It's always great to have you on here. So um, uh, guys, go ahead. Follow her. All the links are going to be in the show notes below. And always until next time.